Well, I've got to follow that up if you mention the paper. It was only on the last three verses that I wrote that paper, so <laughs> some of which we're going to talk about today, but it won't be uh, that much in depth. Um, and I, I was really excited that this, the, uh, that I was able to speak on this passage because this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Um, number one, because I've got to dive into it a lot. Number two, because of what it means to Paul and kind of being a final letter perhaps to this church that he loves so much, but also how this passage has impacted my own life and how I view the gospel and, and the way that the Lord has worked um, through it to to change me. And so I, I'm really excited to be able to share some of that um, with you guys today. And there's so much that we could go into, and there's a lot going on in this passage, but I'm going to try to just follow one through line through this whole thing that I hope will help us understand a little bit more about Paul and his identity and what he's trying to do with his entire life as he follows Christ. This week I was talking with a co-worker about why God deems certain acts sinful. Her primary concern was was with homosexuality and why that in particular was a sin. Not that that was where the focus of the conversation, it was just the for instance And it seemed unfair that some people get cursed with this same-sex attraction while they have so many other good and redeeming qualities, some qualities that we might even consider to be Christian. They are kind, they're welcoming, forgiving, gentle. So why should those good qualities be overlooked just because they have a flaw towards a sinful tendency? As we begin to talk, I realize that We as the church have done a terrible job in understanding who God is and why he acts the way that he does. Is God just a stickler for the rules that he arbitrarily created? Is his goal to make sure that we aren't having fun or enjoying ourselves in any way other than the way that he deems acceptable? Of course, I believe that probably most of you are thinking, um, as I'm mentioning these rhetorical questions, that of course that's not what God's doing. But while it seems easy to dismiss to dismiss the absurd things that he isn't doing, it's much harder to articulate what he is in fact doing when he sets down these rules. Why does God deem certain activities or behavior acceptable and condemn others? The answer that probably popped into your mind as it pops into mine is that it's keeping him with his character. God says these things because that's his character to act and behave in such a way. And so if they oppose it, We can't have a relationship with him. His holiness prevents us coming to him. And while that's certainly true, I wanted to prod a little deeper. So I wanted to ask her, why? Why would that keep us from having a relationship with him? Is God that petty that he could be great and almighty and sovereign and yet deny us the freedom to do both, please ourselves and love him at the same time? I heard a great piece of wisdom from a business book I read once. I can't tell you what the book is, but it was used for analyzing a decision-making process. And uh, the advice says this, you should always go three whys deep into any decision that you make. If you can ask the question why, why do I do this? Why Why am I doing that? Why are we making this decision? Three successive times, by the third time, you've got a pretty good understanding of why it is, in fact, that you're, you're doing something. And that's really hard. Every successive why is, gets very difficult to answer. 
And I thought this was interesting, and it, it's got its own applications for the work world, but I've really tried to apply that lesson to my theological reflection as well. Asking questions of Scripture, asking questions of God, asking questions of each other of why. Why do we do the things that we do? And I firmly believe that we must ask these questions about our faith because if God is big enough to handle our doubts and questions that we have, then surely the answers that we receive are well worth the time invested. He's big enough to handle those. In fact, I believe that he invites us to honestly wrestle with those issues as we count the cost of discipleship and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. If Jesus truly is the Messiah, God in the flesh, then the truth of his life and the good news of the gospel is capable of standing strong against any questions we could possibly throw at him. And the result will be that we come away with our faith renewed and made stronger in the witness of the gospel's message. So, if I, so as I've taken this practice, like I said, and, and, and put it to my own life, as I was talking with my coworker, a question kind of came up in the back of my mind. It wasn't the, the question of the topic that we were talking about, but it was what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? And it just so it happened that it coincided with Chase asking me to speak this week and diving into this very question that we now turn. I'm going to back up and start in 18 just to give you what Paul is saying as we transition from last week into this week. Verses 18 to 19 represents a transition in what Paul is saying here in, this, um, in his letter as he, he switches from his view on him to start looking at the Philippian churches themselves. And he's, he's transitioning from saying that all these people in Rome are starting to preach the gospel out of envy or rivalry That's okay because I'm glad that the gospel is being preached. However, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayer, through your prayers, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed at all but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear So I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now here 
that I still have. Passages of Scripture are like diamonds. They have many different facets, and we could begin to look at a diamond and its facets in all kinds of different ways. We could dive in and we could look at one little tiny passage, and I could spend a whole lot of time on one or two words or one or two little themes in here. And I feel that there's like five or six different themes that I kind of wanted to trace through. In fact, when Chase asked me, I said, the hardest problem is going to just be preaching one sermon because I want to preach like three or four out of this. Like I was mentioning earlier, I I really want to look at this passage as a whole. I want to follow the trail and try to discover what the central question is that Paul is trying to get at here with what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? When I wrote that paper that I was talking about, this exegetical paper for my uh, professor, I got it back, and it's one of the papers I'm most proud of. I got a really good grade. He's kind of a stickler, really hard professor. But he had a really scathing comment on there, and it was just sort of just a drive-by, well above an A, but it was just he circled the word worthy and said, hey, you missed this. I had gotten a little too caught up in what I was uh, doing with some of the other words in the passage that I had completely skipped over. What could be seen as a small adverb, an easy mistake of worthy, what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. Because there's really another word in verse 27 that really grabbed my attention, and I spent most of my time looking at that word. So this has been in the back of my mind for years to come back and answer this question. Paul uses this phrase, in other parts of his uh, letters when he challenges us to be worthy of the call of Christ or worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a really prominent theme that he he draws upon for all of his letters. Last week, Chase set up the context of this letter beautifully um, to help us understand just exactly what's going on here. Um, He ended by reiterating Paul's prayer for this church that he loves so much, praying, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, that they might understand what God had done for them, that they might love each other through it, and discern what God was doing in their midst so they might be made more righteous. And although Paul has a similar style in which he writes to all of his churches, this letter is special to him because the language he uses is more like a a letter of friendship. It's not so much instruction or um, he's not trying to solve some great heresies. We don't see any huge theological errors or personnel issues rising up in the Philippian church. He's really just writing to them out of the deep, honest love that he has for them. And while he does encourage them and urge them forward in the faith, he does it in a way that connects their journey with his own. Paul has a special connection to these people. He identifies with them. And in this passage, he recognizes that their shared identities find their center. They find their purpose in the person of Jesus Christ. In Philippians in 19 and 20, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. The thing that that catches me um, right off the bat when I read 18 and 19 is that theme of joy that it seems that Paul seems to be having some great joy in the midst of what could be seen as like horrible suffering and at least a very difficult situation. I mean, he's in a house arrest. He's probably been in much worse prisons, but he's got this joy even in this hard situation and staring down a potential death sentence at the end of this. He goes from focusing on his own situation, though, and recounting how 
um, what he was doing to focusing on the Philippian church themselves. He switches his fo- as he switches his focus, he also changes his perspective as well. He's not just looking at the present. He's now starting to look at the future. I will rejoice. I rejoice now, but I will also rejoice in the future because of the connection that we now have. Paul is grateful that they are standing, in, standing together for the gospels being proclaimed in all of the situations that are going on here, both in their circumstances and in his. But as he switches his perspective, um, he's he's seeing the results of all of this work come through uh, in his life. The best way to look at the next line of text is to actually see what Paul is doing in the second part of it. So uh, we're going to jump over. Gordon Fee has a really great quote on this in his commentary on Philippians that I have to read from. Um, of what he's doing. Paul's first clause, this will turn out for my deliverance, that quote, is in fact verbatim borrowing from Job thirteen sixteen in the Septuagint, the Greek text. In the second clause, with its collocation of shame and magnifying, his, his, using those two words there, picks up the language of the poor man in Psalms, in, in Psalms such as 34, 3 and 6, and 35, 24 through 28. Thus, even though This is now Paul's own sentence and must be understood with its present context. It is best understood as intentionally echoing the analogous circumstances of Job. Paul here, like many of his letters, quotes the Old Testament, picking up and pulling in themes from Scripture. He sees his life and what God is doing in it through his situation as a participation in what God has always done. His story is connected to the great story of Scripture. And the Lord will use it and work through it to bring about his purposes. That the gospel will be proclaimed so that those who hear might find salvation. Paul has no doubt that his imprisonment, his suffering, will somehow play a key role in the salvation, the vindication is another way that we could translate this Greek word, that is to come. He's confident of that. And the Philippian church have a key role to play in this as they continue to lift Paul up in prayer, For it is through their prayers and the spirit of Jesus Christ that his deliverance will come. Now this is a bit of an awkward phrase that Paul uses here, the spirit of Jesus Christ. But it tells us clearly what Paul is thinking. He's not saying because the Holy Spirit's work in me, as he says other places. Um, he's saying that his situation is actually a bit of a parallel to that of Jesus' standing trial. And it's only because of the spirit of Jesus that resides in him that he will find salvation or vindication. Quoting from Fee again, he says, Thus the phrase, the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ is not incidental. Here's the key to Christ being glorified in every way. By Paul's being supplied the spirit of Jesus Christ himself, who will live powerfully through Paul as he stands trial. At the same time, from such a phrase and its close relationship with the prayer of the believing community, he learns a great deal about, or we learn a great deal about Paul's own spiritual life and his understanding of the role of the Spirit in that life. He simply does not think Christian life is lived in isolation from others. He may be the one in prison and headed for trial, but the Philippians and others are inextricably bound together with him through the Spirit. For Paul, his entire identity is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. Whatever happens to him, it will be for the glory of Christ. 
whether he lives or dies. And there seems to be a real question as to which will be his bodily fate. But regardless, the outcome will be the same because it will result in the vindication, the salvation of Paul's circumstances because Christ will be honored. He sees his life as a sacrifice to be poured out for Christ's glory, whether that be a living sacrifice or one that requires his death. So as this week, as I talked with my coworker, I challenged her to look past this view that um, sees God as setting rules as a way of keeping us at arm's length, only letting us come close if we're good enough or if we measure up, if we are worthy, and to instead look at her relationship with her own child as an analogy for how our relationship with God works. Now, it's just an analogy. They all break down at some point. But I find this is very uh, helpful because um, as we begin to talk, we would never push our own children away, and, and she even said as much. I would, there was nothing my child could ever do that would push my child away. I, I would always want to love and accept them. What I challenged her to do is to look at it more from a sense of identity, of why do you have certain rules and behaviors in your home, though? I mean, of course, yes, to protect your children so that they don't do certain things. But I actually think it's, it's a question of identity. Why do I want my own children to behave and act in such a way? It's because I want them to be part of my family. They represent what the Lamberth family represents. And I want them... I want to impart to them this identity that I have, both who we are as a culture and our own family makeup, but also this culture of Christ, of living a Christian life. It's not that I want them to not do the things that they want to do or to climb up on high stools that could topple over like they did yesterday, but I want them to to be secure in their identity and know who they are and so that we can have a relationship with each other because if they don't have a relationship, if we don't identify in the same, we can't have a relationship. And she could reject, my child could reject that relationship and thereby cast off any relationship that I might have with hers. Paul's behaviors, his actions, and his mindset are all driven by his identity in Christ. He is not concerned with why this must happen to him. He knows that it is happening Uh, as a result of God's work to bring about salvation. And for that, he is required to walk in the way of Christ. And while that may be difficult at times and cause physical suffering, for someone like Paul who has his own identity so wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ, he has no choice but to walk this path, the same path that Christ was willing to walk because of his great love for us. This is why Paul then goes on to make the next statement. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What is Paul getting at here? Does he actually want to die? Sometimes we read this passage and we think that Paul is actually contemplating uh, suicide maybe or he actually wants to, to die because then he goes on and he says, I'm not really sure which one I'm going to choose. This underscores a few things for me. Um. Because he's very confident that the Lord will release him. As we read this passage, we see that he ultimately ends up in a place that his, his hope is for the future. I trust that the Lord is going to make this out. But then he, also, he comes back in a little bit and says, well, but in case that doesn't happen again, you know, be ready. 
But what I see from this is that he's, um, he's living in an embodied experience. We really see him struggling with his own flesh in this case. These seems to be two opposing positions, life and death. But for Paul, understanding his secure identity in Christ, he realizes his life is not his own. He is part of something greater than him. And no matter what the bodily outcome of his trial, God's work is not done. Either he will achieve the ultimate prize and be with Jesus, that pursuit to which his entire life has been dedicated, or he will remain and continue on with the task of working to see the fruit of the gospel multiplied. For Paul, the situation is serious, and either the outcome and either outcome is a real possibility. He believes and trusts that the trial will result favorably. But his life's pursuit, his identity, is so centered in the person of Jesus Christ that either outcome is acceptable, and indeed a cause for joy, because the power of the gospel will be demonstrated through the sacrifice of Paul's life. Christ will be honored through his body, no matter if he lives or dies. Before we leave this section of scripture, I can't help but notice um, how Paul is using this language of his body and his, his flesh. Um, his words are intentional here, and he chooses those uh, very bodily, uh, the imagery that evokes body instead of his usual um, phrase that we usually just translate in me to kind of uh, connote the holistic being, like God is doing something in me, in my entirety. He's being specific about his body here. And, um, and that's because he's really trying to say that this isn't just happening to me, but there's a real outcome that I could die. Like there's a physical thing that's going to be happening to me. And I can't help but notice that that becomes the, the, uh, the event, the place in which this struggle is taking place. Um, this is the cause of our suffering because the effects of sin on the world. Our flesh is not evil. God created us, created us as such. We are meant to live as bodily beings and enjoy the pleasures and benefits that come from our position. However, sin's curse has broken our natures and marred God's image in us. We are no longer able to, to be the image bearers we are meant to be. We are no longer able to fulfill the purpose for which we were created. I love the way N.T. Wright says this, and, and he turns um, image into a verb. We are supposed to image God to the world like a mirror, and that God's glory shines on us, and we reflect it out into the world, and we take in the world and reflect that praise and glory back to God. Our image, our purpose is broken. But that is why the gospel is such good news. Through the work of Christ, we find restoration. Our image is restored as we die to ourselves and join in the power of Christ's resurrection. Our purpose of being God's image bearers is renewed, and as such, our callings become clear. Reflecting God's image to the world now looks like reflecting the person and work of Jesus Christ to a broken world. Though his image, or through his image, the world is remade. Like I said, there's a lot that we could go into the rest of this first half of the, the passage, but I want to jump through some of that fairly quickly and get to the second part because I think this is what Paul is ultimately wrestling with. He's, he's using his circumstances. He's using his trial. He's connecting them together in order to give them this charge. Really here in verse 27, this is Paul's 
thesis statement for the rest of the letter. This is where it's at. He, again, changes his tone. It's still on the Philippians, now more than ever, and he begins to give them a direct imperative. He starts off with saying only, and this is kind of a bad translation. It really, a better way of saying this is regardless of what happens to me. So again, let me just read the last few uh, verses up to that. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. But regardless of what happens to me, let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life. Again, in an unfortunate constraint of our translation and our language, the strong imperative that Paul is using here is lost in the phrasing of let the manner of your life. Josh kind of told me that he teased this at the men's breakfast already, but this word is, is, is unique for Paul, and this is where I could really just start talking and leave, be here for a while. But um, this is a unique word. Paul, again, charges other churches and other letters to let their life reflect, and this gets translated very similarly. But this is only one of two instances of this word um, being used in the New Testament, and it's the only time that Paul uses it. And it's called, it, the, the word is paletuesta, and it comes from the root of polis, where we get our word politics from. It's deeply political in what this word is connoting. And again, as Chase set us up last week, he talked about the Philippian colony, and these were a proud people, proud to be from Rome, many of which probably had ancestors or direct connection to the military might of Rome. They could be called up at any moment. They would have had a proud history and heritage of this. So evoking a political uh, word like this in their minds and for their unique situation, I think, would probably be like me saying to you guys to take up your patriotic heritage as kingdom citizens of God. Let your actions be patriotic for the kingdom of heaven. And we invoke all of the, the imagery that we normally have as good patriotic Americans. And, and, and all of that imagery kind of gets transposed onto the pride, the joy, the honor that we should be put into our identities as citizens of this new kingdom that Paul is talking about, that Christ has inaugurated. It's unlikely, though, that many of the Philippian church uh, members would have had Roman citizenship. Sure, some would have, um, but many would have been trying to attain it because of the benefits that it would accompany them. Paul is trying to get his audience, though, to raise their sights to a higher or prior kind of citizenship, which includes all of them, not just the elite few. Thus, it would be full of meaning in the light of their privileged status as Roman citizens, now addressing them as to their civic responsibilities to the new polis, the new city, the believing community of which they are a part, whose responsibilities will be spelled out in what Paul goes on to say. It's not that he says that they should renounce their Roman citizenship. Obviously, Paul's in the situation that he's in right now because of his Roman citizenship. It's something, it's, it's a tool that can be used, I think, and we've seen that uh, uh, with Chase preaching through Acts and the way that, that Paul utilized it in certain uh, key strategic situations. And so I'm not, I don't want to get into the, uh, the issue of, is he saying like renounce it all or, or do anything? He's just simply trying to get them to look at the higher citizenship here in this case. 
To summarize, I'll simply say that Paul was talking about a different kind of citizenship. This new citizenship radically restructures their way of life. They were no longer to act or react the way the world does. As the context makes clear, the standard against which this ordering takes place is not Rome or Jewish law. It is the gospel of Christ. Therefore, Paul uses this word to evoke certain presuppositional, again, think the the grand patriotic, I always think of the 4th of July, our annual time of remembering, those presuppositions about the moral and ethical obligations that they have, and then redefines them based on the gospel. Paul does not set up a dualistic ideology of citizenship, being both a good citizen according to the world and to heaven. Their entire identities have been changed so that their conduct is now in regards to how they live according to the gospel. Their conduct is to be based on that which is worthy of the gospel. Ultimately, this becomes the reasons for all that Paul exhorts the Philippians to do. Their identity rests in Christ. Therefore, their lives should reflect such. What follows this statement, and it's the rest of the sentence basically that he goes on, becomes Paul's outline for what this conduct looks like. Ultimately, the, the ultimate Christian living in Christ's life is the paradigm that we, we will get to see in a week or two when uh, we cover Philippians 2, 5 through 11. The emptying of Christ, what that looks like, will ultimately become the answer to what this question is of how we walk and live a life worthy of the gospel. But we're not there, we're here. So if the manner of our life is to be one of political subversion, again, thinking not primarily about our citizenship here, but thinking of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, of letting the gospel and the life of Jesus influence the way that we live our lives as a way of living as citizens, sojourners on this earth. The adverb worthy helps us understand the specific, the specific behavior that we are to embody. And what I love most about Paul and the way that he lives and writes is that his motives in theology are so well thought through that his own life becomes a demonstration of the point that he's trying to make. For Paul, the gospel is not something that we should simply know, to hear and do nothing with. No. When the gospel penetrates our hearts, it calls us to action, a new way of life. And we can see what kind of life this is through the struggle that Paul has recounted in the first part of the passage, as well as in the specific exhortations that he gives the Philippine church. They are to stand together in one spirit, just as the Philippians are unified with Paul in participating in his suffering through the help of the Spirit, so they are to also stand together in their own context. They are to remain bold as they face their enemies, just as Paul must stand before a Roman tribunal and give a bold account of what Jesus has done, so they must face their own enemies and persecutors. For facing them with boldness is... For facing them with boldness and love is actually a sign that the gospel is at work amongst them and will be used to bring about God's purpose of salvation in the world.
And finally, they suffer for Christ as living sacrifices, offered up for the glory of Christ. For no other way of walking, no other way of conducting life is as powerful a witness than that of a life poured out in suffering for others. This is what Christ did as he went to the cross. He poured out his life for us so that we might have life and joy in him. And it seems a strange thing that we could have both joy and suffering in tandem. But as we have seen the effects of the gospel play out in Paul's life throughout the book of Acts, it is only because of his firm identity in the person of Jesus Christ that this could possibly happen. To partake in his identity is our ultimate purpose. And part of his identity is the crucified Christ. So God is not concerned with squashing our fun or dictating our behavior out of some control-free desire. He is concerned with our identities, who we are. And so if we are to follow Christ and be born again, remade into the image of God, who is Christ Jesus, our identities must change. This call that Christ puts before us is one of death, for we cannot change our identities without letting go of the ones we currently hold. When we think about dying to ourselves, we say that phrase a lot. I've got to die to myself. But what does that mean? Is that actually, again, is, is it suicide? A lot of people in the early church actually thought that maybe Jesus was talking about this or, you know, you have to partake in my blood and it's actually some sort of like blood magic or sacrifices that they were partaking in. But when we look at our identities and we're called to lay our lives down as living sacrifices, Paul was in the midst of saying whether he's going to live or whether he's going to die. Most of us are not in the situation of having to face bodily death and see our lives vindicated through that death. But every day we must walk as living sacrifices and lay down our own natural desires. The things that we want, so desperately want, and we struggle with it because it seems so good. And why wouldn't God want me to have fun or pleasure or enjoy the good life? It almost seems that for me to lay that down would be to lose a part of myself because it's, it's so deeply ingrained in who I am. It's so deep into my heart. But I think that's the purpose, is that when we realize that that is that much a part of us, the only way that we could get rid of that, to lay that down and go contrary to where our natural flesh, our natural desires would pull us is because it requires us to die. It feels like death, like we're letting go of a part of ourselves. And indeed, I think we are. That's why we must join in Christ's death through baptism and his resurrection to be raised in the power of that. Otherwise, we can't let go of one identity and walk in another. And as we all know, this isn't instant. It's not, okay, I... I got baptized. I no longer struggle. It's a daily living sacrifice where we give of ourselves and we feel that death daily. Jesus did not die to save us so that we could go on living the good life. Instead, when Jesus calls us to follow him as his disciples, he calls us to carry our crosses. And while it's easy for us to kind of dismiss or scoff at the disciples for missing the significance of that reference when Jesus gave them that charge at the time, I believe we have even more guilt when we miss it. Because we have the entire story written before us, and yet 
it seems we still miss the implications of Jesus' call. Our call to follow Jesus will result in the sacrificial death of ourselves. Not that our deaths will bring about salvation of others in the way that Christ did. Although, as we sacrificially lay our lives down for the sake of the gospel, our death becomes the means for others to see and hear the gospel and thereby accept Christ. Our lives are to be lived as living sacrifices to glorify God. Our lives are embodied. We live them in these physical bodies. In a world that was created by God. We experience God. Yet we must live embodied lives while dying to our own desires. We must literally give up those things, those ideals, those people, those aspirations, those desires, those pleasures, those privileges, those rights, and those pursuits that we want most in order to pursue the way of Christ. For his way, the gospel, his very life is what defines proper conduct as citizens in his kingdom. Paul has formed a vision of the gospel that reaches through the entire history of God with his people to show that the gospel fundamentally transforms our lives and is deeply practical for the way in which we live. It takes all of who we are to walk in it, and even more. We cannot do it alone. Only by standing with one another in unity and in the Holy Spirit can we hope to conduct ourselves as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does it mean to live for Christ as a kingdom citizen worthy of the gospel? Because I can't ever decide on one definition, I'll just read you two of the three. To glorify him through the sacrifices of our daily lives is they are lived for him. Christ's life becomes our life. The way in which he lived his life, a life that ultimately led to the cross, dictates the way in which we live ours.